Hello, Faded Podcast listeners. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. How super exciting. We are going to kick it off with episode 24. Um, Stefan Marion is with us. He is another great friend um, and loyal member of Recovery Family um, with Chris. Uh, Chris and he have a past and connection, um, as have many of the guests that we've had on the podcast thus far. And today we spend a lot of time discussing um, what we call, and as the title of the episode says, Catching Fire. So um, just that experience of going through addiction, um, realizing the issue, and then um, when you are introduced to understanding really what's going on inside of you, catching that fire that really just makes you want to continue forward, that really gives you um, that motivation um, and excitement to not only continue in your own recovery, um, but to help others as well. So this concept of catching fire, um, as well as a lot of discussion on finding balance in life, um, as well as acceptance and the good, the bad, and the ugly that goes along with that is our topic of discussion for this week. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you you as always for listening and without further ado let's get into episode 24. What's up Stefan? What's up buddy? Chilling man eating a peanut butter and Nutella sandwich. Oh nice. Yum. I just crushed yeah, some pizza yeah. at 4.30, uh, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. No shame. <laughs> that sounds like my dream come true. <laughs> well, it's a good time to eat. <laughs> yeah. Why not? No rules. Okay. Um, well, for our very first episode of 2021, we're putting 2020 in the rear view. Um, excited about that, but also a lot of good that came from 2020. So we're starting off on a positive note. Um, and with us today, we have um, another from Chris's uh, network friends group, um, a, a close person in his life. Uh, Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, uh, so honored to be here. Yay, we're, we're pumped to have you. And Chris, um, as always, welcome back and happy 2021. Happy 2021. Thank you. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> All right. So um, in, in recap of 2020, and I did just a brief one at the end of the year, um, we went into so many great stories of um, addiction, alcoholism, recovery, this world of substance use disorder. And um, I personally learned a ton. I know others did as well that have been tuning in. Um, but Stefan, we are continuing with our storytelling. We feel like um, that is the easiest way to help bring light to um, what you and Chris and others have been through um, and to, to help bring some context for those that are loved ones out there or family members, friends, whatever their role is in the lives of, of those that have gone through this or will go through this, um, just so that either they have answers um, or a bit more light um, or they can be prepared for if something comes up, they know generally um, where to start and what to do. So. Uh, to start things off, I would love if you could just give a little bit of background of who you are and, and kind of how your addiction journey started. Um, just a little background of your earlier years um, for the audience to have that context. Sure, sure, of course. Um, so I am from Canada originally. I did get yeah, sober here are. in the U.S. in Texas. Yeah, I am. I'll probably mispronounce a couple of things, maybe say a boot or house <laughs> or mom or something incorrect. And <laughs> it'll it. give myself away. So I'll just admit that now. Um, so I am from Canada, um, grew up in a upper middle-class family, good neighborhood, you know, good schools, 
started drinking. I think I had my first drink at 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. I do remember going to the eighth grade drunk a couple times at lunch. Mm. Um, no real repercussions. Didn't really get caught. We would take a bit of uh, every bottle, put it in a blender, and then try and stomach it on our way back oh. to school. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it was always fun when the Baileys curdled on top. You oh, know? wow. Um, <laughs> things you don't know in the moment. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Things you don't know when you're 12. Right. Um, and, you know, my dr drinking progressed all, you know, all through high school. Um, pretty heavily towards the end of high school. Uh, I didn't touch drugs actually until I was 18. Hmm. Um, it just wasn't, it just wasn't commonplace. Uh, drinking was very commonplace, but drugs were not, you know, started doing drugs, uh, became a DJ and fell into that lifestyle. And obviously uh, my drug use increased as well as the the types of drugs and just got harder and harder. And um, you know, had a good career that paid six figures as outside of the DJing, um, did pretty well, um, right up until the moment I couldn't, I couldn't keep it together. I was the, the you know, a project manager on like a $60 million job and ran it great as I'm, you know, completely messed up on Oxycontin every single day. And then the next job, I just completely fell apart. And I ended up going to treatment for the first time, I believe, in 2006 or 2007. And went to treatment a, a bunch of times, um, right up until 2010, when my, I finally agreed to go to Texas, per my parents' wish. Not the, not the place I wanted to go. Mm. And, you know, it was, my experience is pretty similar uh, to Chris. To Chris's, you know, I went to the same treatment center in the Hill Country, and uh, a man with an eye patch finally said something that made sense to me. And for the first time in my life, I finally understood what addiction and alcoholism was as it pertained to me, and you know why why all the attempts up to that point had been complete complete failures. I had been in in and out of the rooms of twelve step fellowships for four years you know, been, went to treatment five times, or six times before 2010. And just no one had actually ever explained what addiction or alcoholism was to me. It was a, it was a bunch of like nonsensical rhetoric. Like, like I would ask like, what's addiction? And someone would tell me, well, it's cunning, baffling and powerful. And I, I, I don't know what that means, right? Like, is, is, is there any person that can tell me why I can't stop? Or why, if I do stop, I start again. And, you know, no one had ever explained that to me in a way that made sense. It was a bunch of slogan slinging and chanting and, you know, rah, rah, you know, just, just keep coming back. Sometimes when we talk about that, it sounds like we're blaming other people, but it's no coincidence no. that you and I and so many different people have the exact same experience with not hearing the appropriate message while in the program. and then finally when hearing it being like oh my god this is going to be so easy you know <laughs> like i yeah. wish i would have had like it and it's kind of funny because you're, you're taught in some places in a lot of places that like you're going to struggle and it's going to be a long struggle and life is going to be hard and it's not even like they're giving you you know 
false hope whenever you come to the rooms and you and you experience the right message it's it's truth and it's and it's real and and i just wanted to say that because it's 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 amazing how quickly some people can be like well you're blaming somebody else but we're not it's just our experience you know right and it's look i I don't think that any anybody that you know was carrying a message that didn't ring true with me i guess would be the nicest way to say that was trying to cause any harm right right like i i just don't believe that i just believe that uh, what we see a lot of in 12-step recovery is people parroting, uh, people mimicking, people, you know, you hear something and so you repeat it because you think that that's part of the program and that's what it was. Someone taught them that and they learned it and then they taught somebody. I don't think they were ever trying to harm anybody, but like I can nope. tell you that some of my some of my darkest days uh, were spent sober sitting in 12-step fellowship. Hmm. Um, wondering like how I was going to get through the day, you really start to internalize that, and you start to think that it's somehow you or me, at, as, as the case may be, that maybe I don't fit in in this room, and maybe I can't get better here. And you know, it's the the place that you're told to go to to get help, and you're sitting in the room, and there's no help, and you're just sailing and fluttering, and and just completely unable to grasp any type of sobriety and um it's a pretty dark place it's a really dark place and it was a lot of suicidal ideation and you know even a uh, an attempt yeah um while sitting in the rooms of 12-step fellowship i was an atheist for 25 years and you know still sitting in the fellowship uh, you know 12-step fellowship rooms and like people telling me that it's okay for, you know, Garfield or a trash can or a doorknob or whatever to be your higher power, <laughs> just make it something. Um, you know, and, and I, looking back, I obviously see why there was absolutely no success. Um, I can take a doorknob off of a door and do whatever I want to it pretty much. It's definitely not right. A power you know, than myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a doorknob. And like what, you know, what I've learned over the years is like, unless the first step absolutely makes sense to you, none of the rest of them will. Even if you're trying to fake it till you make it. Um, if the, if you don't fully understand and grasp the first step, uh, if you're like an, a real deal alcoholic or drug addict, uh, the rest of the steps will never make sense. Um, it never made sense to turn my will and my life over to the, a power greater than myself or come to believe in a power greater than myself because the first step never made sense. Um, nobody had ever explained it to me until 2010 and, you know, God willing, I'll, in a few days here, I'll have 10 and a half years. So what did you, I mean, back in those times before it had been explained to you, what did you think of the 12 steps then? Like what, what was going through? Is it, was it just more of like a, like boxes to check, like a list to just have down on paper or what, it, what were you thinking you know, when you were in the rooms and you didn't know quite the difference, of course, because you hadn't been explained it the right way. I, I, at the end of the day, I was just trying to stop using and drinking. And that, that's why I went, you know, I, I wouldn't go and darken the doorstep of a 12 step meeting for any other reason. And I, I just kept thinking that I was at fault, that something was inherently wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I couldn't get it. And like, you know, they, oh, well, fake it till you make it. Okay. So I, 
I did that too. And I would pick up dirty chips all the time. I had never had more than 21 days sober outside of a treatment center before 2010. But I definitely had, you know, I definitely had a drawer full of 30, 60 and 90 day chips. Yeah. <laughs> um, hoping that somehow uh, whatever was going on in that room, whatever the magic was, that it would just somehow rub off on me or the miracle would just happen. Right. Um, and it just never did. Yeah. And then you, so you find, you know, Texas and you're, and you've been now introduced to this new way of, of understanding. Um, and, and what, how did you know that was different? Was that just a feeling? It just was kind of a moment, kind of like what we've heard of, you know, wow, this, this is hitting me differently. And then from there, how did it progress? Um, you know, that you continued into recovery a different way. Well, like the, the first, I, I, I believe it was like day 10 or 11 in treatment. And um, it, it, it rang true with me because I had, I had never heard it. Uh, for the first time in my life, someone had a, a viable explanation as to why I couldn't stop. Um, and why, if you know, even if I did go to treatment in a short amount of time afterwards, I would start again. Right. Um, it was the first time I had ever heard about a, a mental obsession and a physical allergy that, you know, once I put it into my system, uh, a compulsion would occur in me, something would, would be set off and I wouldn't be able to control how much I used. Um, and even when I did stop, uh, I didn't have the power necessary to not pick up the first one again. And it just, you know, my, my whole, my whole mind was, was, was completely awake at that, that moment. And a few days later in my room, I had a bush burning experience around the second step of coming to believe, um, you know, where I, I sobbed, I, I had been an atheist for so long and then coming to believe in a power greater than myself, God, um, it was life shattering and life changing for me. Um, you know, I stayed in treatment for the 30 days. I left there and went into a sober house. I was through the steps in 21 days out of treatment, all 12, um, not because I was trying to win some type of a race or, or be a show off or anything that it was just that my experience in the past showed me I had about 21 days outside of treatment before I used again. That's crazy. So, so that was the time frame. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your, your experience. I mean, that's incredible, you know, as you know, an atheist for 25 years and then finding, you know, this experience where you suddenly have that, that much of a change. I mean, can you tell us more about how that happened? And, you know, was it something that was said? Was it just kind of a, a moment internally with yourself? Like, how did that come to be? So I was actually in my room, uh, reading We Agnostics again for the, I don't know how many of time, uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And um, I knew I was uh, further back in the chapter, but for some reason my bookmark was on page 56 um, where it, it poses the question, like, who are you to say there's no God? And like it, like just in an instant, I was struck, um, you know, like with just like this overwhelming feeling that like things were gonna be okay. And that was the first time I'd felt like things were going to be okay for a long time. And, you know, a, a complete and utter belief that uh, there is a God and that he can work in my life. 
Um, and I sobbed for like 45 or 50 minutes on the floor in my room. And then I went to my therapist's office and sobbed in, in his office mm. <laughs> for like another 35 minutes. Yeah. What a relief. <laughs> um, I can imagine that's a lot of weight. It is. It was, it was years of carrying around frustration and anger and hatred and, and all of these other things that had built up in me, you know, obviously because of a lot of resentment. And it, it was shed in a moment. And it was one of the most free experiences I've ever had in my life and still is to this day. Yeah. Really great. And what actually, um, you know, going back to you ending up in Texas, like what, what made, I mean, did your, were your parents or your family, were they aware of that facility specifically? Like how did you end up yep. there um, after a, a few, you know, other attempts in other places? <laughs> yeah. A uh, funny, funny story. Um, uh, my parents had actually been trying to get me to go there for three years, two or three years, because they saw that treatment center on the Dr. Phil show. That's where Dr. Wow. Phil sent his clients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and I was even in treatment with some of them, oddly enough. Um, but that, that's, that's what it was. Um, my mother watched the Dr. Phil show and she saw... <laughs> They kept referring to this place in in Hunt, Texas, and um, you know I didn't want to come to Texas. Uh, I thought it was all like a bunch of cowboys and hillbillies. Um, We've and, heard that and just like just right, and just like how insane that thinking is. Like I come from an I oil. I said the town. exact same a, thing. Right, like I was a union boilermaker. I literally worked in refineries like since I was eighteen. Right. Um, in a in a very you know, rural set area in Canada. Um, the biggest city anywhere near us was like, you know, 95,000 people. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're trying to get sober at the worst place you could ever be in in your life. And you're like, well, I don't want to go here because this place is too country for me. Yeah. Yeah. Even though like, you know, I, I, I worked in refineries for most of my life. Right. right. Uh, just the, just the, the arrogance and the, just how blind, how blind I was. And 10 years later, where are you both living now? Texas. Yeah, I had a, Still here. About, a 16, yeah, I had about a 16 month stint uh, in Florida and yeah, came back, came back to Texas. Yeah. Texas is home. It's a great place. Texas is awesome. It um, is. So tell us a little more, uh, you know, you've been through 21 days, um, you're through treatment. Like how did, how did your next kind of, you know, few months, years, you know, your, your next part of your journey continue. Yeah. So I, I moved into a sober house, uh, not knowing any of the people there. That was awkward. You just moving in with a bunch of random guys that you've never met before. Um, it turned out to be, you know, a pretty amazing experience. And I I'm still in contact with three of the guys that I was in sober living with 10 and a half years ago. But I, you know, I, I had a guy come and knock on the door of the sober house the one day. Um, and he was considerably younger than me, but full of energy. And he's just like, he's like, man, get in the car. I'm your new sponsor. And I was just like, okay, okay. Sounds fair enough. And, uh, we went through the work pretty quickly. And, you know, like one of the things about early sobriety, like it's like when you catch fire, um, there's no stopping you. And, you know, like we, it, it was almost like I was on a crusade once I was through the work. It's like, you know, we're going to go around and we're going to find 
every hopeless addict and every hopeless drunk and we're going to get them the proper message. And, you know, like we were driving around to other towns to go to meetings there and hoping to, you know, find new people to work with. And life was simple. It was simple. It was, you know, trust God, clean house, help others. And, you know, really trying to help others. And it was, you know, I ended up becoming a part of a group of guys that like everybody was on the same page. Everybody, you know, was on fire. Everybody wanted to help other people. And that's what we did. I, I, you know, did I go to 90 meetings in 90 days? Yeah. Was it because it was going to keep me sober? No, no, it was just, I had nothing else to do, but to go to meetings and try and help other people. Is in general, like coming out of treatment when, so, and, and Chris, same question for you, like, is the understanding or is the general recommendation to, to move into sober living and like how, you know, for, for the others that are in treatment with you that are coming out around the same time, like, is everyone pretty open to that at that point? Um, if they've, if they've kind of gotten there, I guess, in their own journey, or is that something that is kind of like a hit or miss, um, for people that are coming out of treatment? So my experience was, okay. My experience is, do you need sober living to get sober? No. Is it going to potentially help your chances of staying sober increase? I believe so, because you're constantly surrounded by people who are seeking the same experience that you're seeking. You're accountable to people for sometimes for the first time in in people's lives. Like for, for me, it was, it was honestly the moment in my life and the time in my life where I started to grow up and learn how to take care of myself. I'm still learning how to take care of myself, but um, (laughs) it's, it's really where I, I, reached a place where I was with a group of people who were following the same path, trying to become better people, trying to help other people. And it kind of just is more reinforcement. Um, the people that went to sober living, were there plenty of them that let, that got high or drunk? Yes. 100%. But in my opinion, I think sober living is great and I recommend it to anyone. If I was sending my own child there or if, I, if my own child was getting sober, I would highly push them towards that. Do you need it? No. And, and is, in my opinion, as long as you are working the steps and, and you have had an honest first step experience and you are willing to help other people and actively seeking that out, you can get sober anywhere in the world, given any circumstance whatsoever. Yeah. Like, and, and, you know, like the fact is that the longer, like statistically speaking, like if you were to look at treatment and continuum of care, which sober living would be uh, the last part of, uh, the longer you are in some level of care, the better your chances are of staying sober. Um, that That's just the statistical facts. You know, if there were a lot of nights early on where I'm only sleeping two, three hours a night because my mind's still racing. Mm-hmm. I'm having trouble sleeping and I'm, you know, um, your brain's still getting God back to for, normal too. Oh yeah, of course. And like, thank God for my roommate and the group of guys that were around me, especially at three o'clock in the morning when I couldn't shut my mind off and I needed somebody to talk to. Yeah. Um, if I had gone home, there would have been no one to share that with, um, or relate to, you know, I, I probably do. Right. And, and it's probably just like another thing I probably would have stuck down inside and held on to and, and felt too much shame or guilt or embarrassment to talk about. Um, but like, that was like some of the 
some of the coolest times in sober living happened, you know, in the middle of the night when it's just, you know, you're relating to somebody around something that you have a bunch of shame and guilt around. And you realize that, you know, you're not, not necessarily a, a dirt bag and just that um, there's other people that have experienced the same thing and you're not alone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I could see that real life would be a lot. Um, it's just it, cause real life doesn't stop right when you're, when you're away. So it's like, you're, you're jumping right back in and, you know, having, having people in life to relate to in general, regardless of the topic or um, what you're going through, I think is so, so important. So I, I definitely understand, you know, that sentiment. It makes sense. It for sure makes sense. And then, you know, what, when for you, were you convicted that you, you know, that it was different, that you, that you were recovered and that you're, you're like on a path where you can control this. I mean, was that pretty much coming out of treatment or do you have a moment that stands out that you said, Hey, I think, you know, I think I got this right. Well, I've said, I think I've got this in the past and, you know, most of it was (laughs) based in fear and false bravado and just ignorance. Right. Sure. Um, right. I, okay, like you're just going to go do 90 and 90 and you're just not going to pick up no matter what. And everybody now hold hands and chant something. And, and, you know, but this was like, this was a whole different universe. You know, like I, I haven't had the urge to drink or use since that moment in my room at the treatment center when I had a bush burning experience, you know, it has never returned. Uh, obviously that experience would have been for nothing had I have not completed the rest of my steps um, and continued to, you know, work them over a lifetime and continue to help others. That experience would be nothing. Um, it would just be another one of those moments of clarity that just washed away like so many of, so many of them in the past. But yeah, from that moment, I, I consider myself to have been recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And I, I haven't, I haven't been put back in that position because I continue to do some work. Right. Um, Like that's the promise. Like that's the promise is that you can recover from this and be recovered. Um, Not wake up every single day, picking up, you know, dragging your sword into battle one more time just to get struck down by addiction. Um, That's not like, if that's what recovery looks like, I don't want to, I don't want any part of it. Yeah. That's not a promise. It's not a promise to to motivate people, and it's not a promise to to get you set on fire for this. What is your? I mean, now in your like, you know, you're almost ten and a half years. You mentioned sober, which is incredible. What have your more recent years looked like um, in recovery, and like, kind of what do you what do you do daily, or wh- how are you involved in the recovery community? Um, you know, in the more recent times. You know, obviously, early in recovery not having any responsibilities really uh, just being able to go to meetings and, you know, sponsor people and, and do all of that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's not sustainable. Right. Yeah. Um, at, at least not for, for, for me, it wasn't sustainable. If it, if it's sustainable for you, like, man, you're, you're so blessed uh, rock on and keep going. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you know, I also had to, to grow up and get a job and start figuring out balance. Um, you know, that's what a lot of continuing to grow in this is is about finding a balance in your life. Uh, the book talks about, you know, a a better demonstration of like you being in recovery or recovered lies in your job, your home life, 
like how you act in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, it's all, it, a lot of it's been learning how to just deal with life. Um, life's tough. Yeah. You know, life can be tough for everybody and it, it is at times and, you know, trying to stay true to the fundamentals of, you know, what got me sober. And I, I can honestly say that, you know, in, in almost 10 years, and like, this is not about bragging. It's just like, I've always had someone to sponsor, you know, even if because of, you know, my job or whatever else was going on, I haven't been able to attend that many meetings or I haven't been able to, you know, have a baby and, you know, try and get prayer meditation done in the morning when, you know, they're, they're waking up crying every hour and have to be fed. Yeah. You know, like there's, um, but one thing that I've never, ever stopped doing was helping other people. You know, other other parts of the program have ebbed and flowed for me. Um, I don't do any of it perfect. Uh, I don't know if that day will ever occur where I do do this perfectly. Probably not. I don't think so. But a lot of it's just been about finding balance and finding ex- more acceptance of other people. Sure. Um, kind of like what I talked about earlier is like early on, like it was it was literally like a crusade. Like trying to save the world, trying to save every alcoholic, trying to, you know, make sure that everybody hears the message that got me sober. And, you know, I can honestly say that I just really wasn't accepting of other types of recovery early on. And not at all, honestly. (laughs) Uh, Like not at all. Um, I was the same way. I'd go into meetings and, and tell people they didn't know what they were talking about in a roundabout way and realize that it wasn't being useful to other people and it's kind of like finding a balance where we know this solution works we know this process works and the other way hasn't worked for me but it could have worked for some other people and as long as I take that thought process and I'm doing my best to help other people then who needs to hear the message and who will hear the message will hear it and that's the bottom line yeah yeah and that's like the book talks about like, you know, my whole deportment should shout of a man that has the answer of like a recovered man. And like, at times I was just a man standing in a room shouting at people. Literally, <laughs> you know, literally, literally a man Stephen standing in a room. He's seen me do it. <laughs> right. Just yelling at people. And like, that's not my deportment. My deportment is how I carry myself. And, um, you know, I just missing some of the, the fundamental I ideals that go behind the steps like acceptance <laughs> right <laughs> you know accepting other people and wh- and where they're at right um <laughs> you know I'm, I'm preaching all of these principles and then not living them in my life um yeah and you know obviously again not trying to harm anybody and not trying to be hateful it's just um when i came to believe in god i had a very small cup to fill spiritually and there was just yep. such an overabundance of of power and spirit and God in my life that like, I, I just didn't know what to do with it. And that's how it came out. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's understandable for sure. And you know, that's what you knew at the time. And, and obviously you've, you've come to, to grow in your knowledge and understanding, you know, since then. So it all makes sense. And so, I mean, that's, a, that's a good question for both of you. I mean, is there, 
I, I've, I think that's one of the, the myths of recovery, right? Is I've now been learning about other ways that people have recovered and, and found success. So, um, is it fair to say that there, there are more that there's more than one way to recover from this hopeless state? So like I have worked in treatment, you know, almost extensively, um, since I started managing a sober house at like four months sober, my answer back then would have been absolutely not. Exactly. Um, right. But my, my, my answer today is, is different. There's, there's lots of other, like I've seen people get sober in church. I've seen people get sober in smart, in rational, in refuge, uh, in celebrate. I've seen people get sober in therapy. Right. And who am I to say that that's not true or that's not a true path or that they're not recovered. Um, I've kind of had to step back and like one of the, you know, I have three children. Um, and like a question I had to ask myself was if my oldest daughter was 18 or 17 or 16 and she was struggling with an opiate addiction and she had overdosed a couple of times and uh, abstinence wasn't working, would I put her on medication assisted treatment or therapy and the answer was yes mm. yes i would uh in an attempt to save her life but you know i've sp- I spent so much of my recovery shaking my finger at other parents that were just trying to save their children's lives right and and i guess having kids and you know realistically having kids that could end up in the same boat that i was in i i've i've kind of had to think about that differently um, if I'm just trying to save my child's life and I know that if they're on a certain thing that they're not going to overdose and die, would I do it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And the thing about all of these other programs and, and ways to recovery or, or whatever you want to call them is at the end of the day, 12-step fellowship is here. It's not going anywhere. Um, and if you come into a 12-step fellowship and like I said earlier, like if you don't get down with what the first step says truly, the rest of the steps aren't going to work. They're not going to make sense. And if you don't have that first step experience in, in the 12 step fellowship, maybe something else will work for you. Yeah. Who knows? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not God. I don't play God, but like I, I, I've definitely become more accepting of others rights to choose their own path, sure. um, whether it's correct, correct for them or not. Right. Amen. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's it's not my job to interfere in those matters anymore. I love the theme of yeah. acceptance overall. I think that's great. And it's funny that, you know, you relate that back to what you learned at the core anyways. So <laughs> what um, you, <laughs> yeah. you touched on this a little bit already, but I'm curious for both of you, what was the hardest part about transitioning into the real world? And Stephanie, you may have already kind of answered that, but I would love from each of you to know just thinking back on your, like, you know, the moment that you went from, you know, going, going from the, the bubble at, for lack of a better term of recovery into the real world to like really start to create a sustainable life around you. Um, what was your hardest, what was the hardest part of that? And it can be a silly answer or it can be something a bit deeper, but just curious from both of you. My, uh, my biggest struggle, I think was, was not, being around people drinking, not being around family. I didn't personally struggle with all those things. I think my biggest struggle was like following through with commitments 
for the first time in my life because I've been so unreliable for so long hmm. that my uh, sponsor actually sat down with me. And the first thing he said to me was, you know, one, if, if I'm going to help you, the requirement is that you help other people once you're through this work. And two, when you make a commitment, you follow through with it every single time, no matter what, and unless you have a really good excuse and, and, and it's an honest excuse. And I mean, I had some, some speed bumps along the way that I talked about in, in other episodes where like, I wouldn't show up to work because I'd go get a tattoo. And like, I was still doing the things that, that I used to do when I was using and even before I started using, you know, and I had, I just had an experience where I think the hardest part for me was, was, and I got sober when I was right before I turned 21. So, um, becoming an adult in this thing was, was definitely a, uh, learning and growing experience for me and and thank god that i i found this program as early as i did because it helped me grow up quicker than i probably would have because of the principles that i've been able to use and and yeah i think that's probably the, the biggest learning curve or, or speed bump that i ran I'm into just, i'm just thinking about your tattoos right now <laughs> yeah they're ridiculous there's some good Stephen ones knows about them yeah <laughs> Stephen knows about yeah, them. That's some, there's some, there's some good ones. Uh, I am a mess. Yeah, award-winning. Award-winning, <laughs> everybody. So good. Um, uh, yeah. Stefan, what about you? Anything else that stands out about transitioning in and like, or out of out of recovery? Uh, sorry, excuse me, out of that that phase of treatment and into the real world. Not so much then. Um, it's it's obviously like trying to find balance is just you know that's just a part of life for everybody i i, I think yeah uh well for most people anyways but it's definitely it's 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 when something catastrophic happens in your life and you have to walk through it um yeah you know i i got i got married and divorced early in recovery and you know, obviously divorce is never fun. Um, there was like, there's a lot of experiences on the other side of being able to walk through something like that. Um, being present for all of it. There's, there's no alcohol or drugs to hide behind or to mask or, um, cover that kind of stuff up. It's, you know, like you, you're, you're really putting your faith to the test. Right. Uh, at least I was. Exactly. Um, and, you know, people were like, oh, you know, like, like just another one of those things that was parroted in 12 step all the time. Like, oh, always be on the lookout for restless, irritable and discontent. And it's like, man, I'm going through a divorce right now. I can assure you I'm restless, irritable and discontent. Right. Every like, part of sunshine my being is. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not sunshines and, and rainbows right now. Um, something major is going on in my life. But like the cool thing is that like, not once was I at risk of drinking or using through all of that. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I had a power working in my life that walked me through that. Um, just like, you know, all praise to, to God on that one with some dignity and respect that I didn't even think was possible in me. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, like it, for me, it's like a lot of the big changes have just been like adapting to walk through big changes in life. Um, and always going back to realizing that, you know, by staying connected and doing some simple things, like I'm safe and protected no matter what. 
no matter what life throws at me, that's just something that I couldn't even fathom 10 and a half years ago. We're not just supposed to have one spiritual experience and be done. No. Um, no. And, you know, like every time you walk through a tough situation that, that cause life happens, like you, you have another spiritual experience, a, a firmer, deeper faith in, in God. It's, it's, it's just something that's almost beyond words. Yeah. Thank you for saying that too. Cause I think that's what life is all about in general and just growing as a, a person um, and, and, you know, holding yourself accountable to being open to recognizing those moments and having those experiences too. Um, and that goes for anybody and everybody. And it's um, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause I don't think we really talked about that part of spirituality before, but um, certainly, you know, for, purpose and soul and all the things that you want to say go along with that. I think it's extremely important that, you know, we are living out um, our lives in order to hopefully have as many of those as possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I have, so because we haven't talked about this, how do the two of you know one another? Like, when did you meet? And can you give context of like <laughs> that connection? Of story? Um, I know Stephanie, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of people that have, that have already been on the podcast with us and that Chris has introduced us yeah. to. Give me a little background on how you guys know each other. I, I remember Chris when he was in treatment. Yeah. I remember seeing Stefan when I was in treatment and he would come in to talk to the facility <laughs> And I was always like, damn, this guy's on fire for this stuff. And I, and I was already in a position where I was like, dude, I'm all in. Like, you tell me what to do and I'll do it because my way isn't working. And this way seems to, to have worked for other people. And it's just kind of funny because I just remember looking up to Stefan and being like, this guy's definitely had a strong experience with what I'm going through right now. And it, it gave me motivation and, and excitement to continue doing what I was doing and belief that like, you know what, this stuff works. And I was, <laughs> I can't even imagine what I looked like when Stefan met me. I was probably a little punk. <laughs> Christian, who was on an episode recently, literally said, he was like, dude, I was kind of scared of you when we were, when we were in rehab together. You were like, I don't know. It was kind of rough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember you. Well, cause I would go in every Sunday for the alumni meeting. That's when I, I, you know, I, I hate to even use terminology like this, but it's like, you know, like kind of like the, the real recognize the real, you know, like I could see that like a change was starting to occur in him and like, um, you know, one that was similar to the change that I had had. And it was, you, you kind of take note of that. Christian is another one. And there's probably a few others from your graduating class. <laughs> um, um, but you just kind of, you, yeah, like you, you kind of see a spark in someone that, you know, you recognize because you had just gone through that yourself. You know, I, I don't want to say that Chris and I lived at like rival silver living homes, but kind of. <laughs> Um, kind of, kind of did. Yeah, kind of did. Kind, kind of thing? did. Wait, that's um, a thing? <laughs> I'm dying right now. Uh, it's a thing in Kerrville. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing in Kerrville when you don't have, you know, much else to do other than deal with recovery. It's like fraternity yeah. houses. <laughs> it, it really kind of was. Um, yep. Like I even believe that there was like tattoos or something from like the one that Chris went to. I have one on my arm right now, the black diamond. I literally Wait, have a tattoo what? that probably 
Hold on. 20 other people. I think 20 other people probably have this tattoo. The Black Diamond was a halfway <laughs> out that was for guys that were, like, rough. Like, coming off the street. It wasn't, like, you know, as, like, the parents weren't sending their kids to the Black Diamond. It was, like, the guys that had nowhere else to go. And we helped people <laughs> detox on the couch in the house. And it was rough. But um, I ended up moving in there at some point to to manage the house and, and Cody and I got really close and I had lived there long enough to where he was like, all right, let's go get you a black diamond tattoo. And it's a black diamond yeah. one that's on my right arm, Jackie. And many, many other people have that. And there's people that are in graves, right? That are dead that have that. And it's kind of, it's a little brotherhood thing, you know? I, how have I never yeah. heard that story? I'm pretty sure you probably told me like, oh, I just really liked this, this like skater, like skater symbol. No, no, it's a, it's a halfway yeah, it looks house. like Volkog. Yeah. Volkog, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it literally kind of looks like it too. That's, that's really, I bet you when people look at it, they're like, wow, skater kid, huh? Wow, I did yeah. not know you had a brotherhood tattoo. That's incredible. Yeah, I do, <laughs> I do. Funny. I, so yep, you guys are rival, rival recovery, uh, rival halfway houses, right? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, like we all went to the same club. Like we all went to the same meetings. You know, <laughs> um, there were little clicks, like, though, like for a, sure. There was clicky, right? It was more of like a friendly rivalry, more than anything. But yeah, I'm helping was, more people than like, you're helping. <laughs> Oh, just the arrogance. Oh, so good. oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Oh, this is great. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. listen, I, um, uh, we're, let's wrap up here, but I do want to ask one more thing, Stefan, while we have you. Um, and thanks again for joining this. It's been a lot of fun getting to know you. Um, but just, we, we like to end, you know, all these on just anything you'd like to leave, um, whether it's like your own kind of, key learnings from going through all this or anything that, you know, if somebody's listening right now that is either struggling themselves or if there's, you know, a family member that, that just needs a little hope or, um, or you could leave parting words for, what would you like to say? That I, I, you know, there was, um, there was a guy named Holly Shirley that, you know, spent hours on the phone with me before I went to treatment the last time with my family, like kind of reassuring us that everything was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, despite begging to go to treatment um you know the the addiction in me still wanted to like fight it and not go right after like a week after begging to go um you know he he, he stayed on the phone he listened to me and he guided me and you know the world is full of people like that um and they are available it's just that you know, for me, there was so much shame and guilt and everything associated around it. And even the fear of getting sober. And it's, you know, like if you're struggling, reach out, no matter what, reach out for help. Um, somebody will answer a phone. Somebody yeah. will pick up. Um, and yeah, like for the, you know, in these, these last two years, um, for me, it's really just a lot of it's been about acceptance, accepting that there are other ways and they're not my way and that's still okay. Um, and that behind whatever decisions there are, there's, you know, it, I was a, I was 33. I was a scared little 33 year old trying to go to treatment mm -hmm. again. And, um, 
that behind any of those decisions is someone who's probably terrified. Right. And when you reframe, reframe like looking at what other people are doing into to realizing that they're probably just as terrified as as you were or that I was, um, I've learned to, to have a lot more acceptance. You know, yeah. whether people make bad decisions or not, when you're trying to save somebody's life or trying to save your own life, you know, it's it's just one of those things. So many people out there, so many different situations, so many scenarios um, and the acceptance thing. I love that as a theme for the podcast today. I, I appreciate that a lot. Well, that is all I have. Um, Chris, anything to leave in parting? I've got nothing else. I just think this thing is, it's, I don't know, it's getting really cool because there's so many people that are getting on it that I had such profound experiences with in life. And it's cool because it's kind of bringing me through my whole journey of the past 10 years. And, and uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm glad this is helping people. I, I really am. I'm glad that, you know, we are uh, seeing so many people reach out and ask for help. And if anyone's listening and they're, they don't really know how to ask for help or kind of piggybacking off of what Stefan was just talking about, like, if there's anything that you could be afraid of, the last thing you should be afraid of is asking for help from something you're struggling with, because no one's perfect. Everyone deals with struggles in life, whether it is alcohol and addiction or something else. And people want to help. I mean, people are genuinely good people for the most part. And um, I would just encourage anyone to get uncomfortable and just rip the bandaid off and just be like, Hey, I can't do this. I don't know what to do because it's available. Help is available. You guys are the best. Thank you, Stefan, for joining us and being a part of this. We're just continuing these stories. I think it's just so helpful to, to hear different perspectives and different um, people's journeys um, because it's been interesting to hear how individual listeners are relating to different people. So we just really appreciate you joining and um, wish you all the best in upcoming on 10 and a half years. That's incredible. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. It was a, a real honor to be here today. All right, guys, until next time. Uh, thank you so much. Sweet. Happy 2021. Awesome. Have a good one, guys. All right, bye.